Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. We are both so happy to share another episode in our newest series with you, Faithful Bookends. Our debut spotlight series is all about the newest and freshest debut authors and their work. Today's episode shines the spotlight on the magnificent debut novel, River Sing Me Home by Eleanor Shearer. Eleanor Shearer is a mixed race writer living between London and Ramsgate. Eleanor also currently works for a think tank. She studied a master's degree in politics at the University of Oxford with a specific focus on the legacy of slavery and the case for reparations. Her fieldwork in St. Lucia and Barbados helped build the inspiration for her debut. Eleanor, welcome to Power Bookends. Thanks so much for having me. So what we like to ask all of our guests and our bookends love this just as much as I do, or I hope they do, is to pry into what you are currently reading. Yes, I'm currently halfway through a book called Beyond Black by Hilary Mantel. Um, Quite by coincidence, I've started this year with something that I found quite lovely, which is um, reading kind of older works from my favourite writers. So I started the year with Fruit of the Lemon by Andrea Levy, who's one of my absolute favourite authors. Oh, I love Small Island. Small Island, my favourite book. (laughs) Um, But I'd never read her earlier stuff. So Fruit of the Lemon was so wonderful. And then um, I'm also a big fan of Annie Prue, who wrote The Shipping Muse and... um, Brokeback Mountain and I read uh, a book of hers called Bird Cloud and now I'm doing the same with Hilary Mantel who obviously her Thomas Cromwell books I love A Place of Great Safety about the French Revolution I love and I just never picked up this one before so yeah it's quite nice sort of discovering works you haven't previously read from writers that you really adore. Amazing. Absolutely I feel like one of my favourite things is like grabbing like backlist titles and like actually like seeing a lot of the time you can see and we're talking about debut authors today but you can sort of see the writers grow Mm. and their ideas grow and Mm. and start to formulate as as time goes on I think it's fascinating yeah absolutely there's also like nothing better than when you you find a book that you really love and then you find that they've got a whole back catalogue for you to dive into like there's no better joy Um, So as this is our debut series, we are really interested in asking authors um, what your journey to having your debut published has been like. Could you tell us more about it? Yes. So I um, first got the idea for this novel about 10 years ago now, um, which is crazy, when I was a teenager. And I went to this exhibition all about um, slavery in the Caribbean and particularly about resistance to slavery in the Caribbean. And it was there that I learned about the fact that after emancipation in 1834, lots of women went looking for the children that would have been taken away from them and sold to different plantations, different islands. And that sort of detail really lodged in my mind and stayed with me because I thought it was such a powerful and brave thing for these women to have done. So always in the back of my mind, I thought I really want to write this book one day about a woman who's going searching for her children. And I was very busy with sort of university and then my master's, which even though I didn't realise at the time, the master's ended up helping me a lot in terms of research, but I didn't do the master's thinking that it would be useful for this novel. And um, then I was working and the pandemic happened and I was lucky enough to have a job where I was working from home, found myself with quite a lot of free time. And I thought, if I don't write this book now, I probably never will. Like the, the kind of time would not be the, the the excuse that I can make to myself after this. So yeah, I sat down and I wrote it. 
it. And um, I love hearing about other writers' processes because I think everyone is so different. Um, mm. So I say this with the caveat that I don't believe this works for everyone, but it definitely worked for me, which was writing every day with a word count. So I wrote 500 words every day, which felt like wow. a manageable kind of enough that you felt like you were making progress, but not so much that it felt like a huge chore. And um, eventually I had a book, first draft. It was pretty messy. I edited it and then I got myself an agent. It was lucky enough to be acquired by a headline who's my publisher in the UK and then Berkeley in the US. And yeah, I think in general, I felt pretty lucky over the last couple of years. I mean, it's been so amazing to have people respond positively to the book and understand what I was trying to do with it, which is shed light on this kind of real part of history that's not very well known. Amazing. And I mean, that's is that a fairly quick turnaround then for you were writing during the pandemic? Mm. And then you know, now it's coming out. I would say that's fairly quick, is it not? Yeah, I, I think in terms of drafting, the book felt quite quick. And certainly, you know, I've now worked on some other projects that weren't necessarily as easy coming. I think because this idea had been sitting for so long, even if I hadn't actually been putting words on the page, it was sort of ready to come out quite quickly. Um But then once you get acquired and your book's kind of got a publication date, it's always so strange how long everything takes. And um, it's wild to be sitting here less than a week out from my book coming out when I spent almost two years waiting for this moment. (laughs) So, yeah, it was a quick turnaround. It didn't always feel like a quick turnaround. Yeah, I love the fact that in lockdown you spent your spare time writing a fantastic (laughs) incredible debut novel and I spent it just like eating cake and (laughs) watching friends (laughs) I spent it trying to read all of the books that have been sat on my shelf for the longest time unsuccessfully (laughs) unsuccessfully yeah yeah (laughs) I didn't cut down that TBR at all No, but that is that is really amazing. You know, I felt like lockdown was such a heavy time for us all. So to have that motivation to like get up every day and get your words down. And I think that's really inspiring, to be honest. And yeah, it's, it is such an incredible book. So, I mean, congrats. To you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've just touched on it a little bit there about how, I mean, this kind of genesis of the idea has, has been with you for about 10 years, which is ridiculous. But I was I was fascinated about the inspiration for the character of Rachel and, and mm. for the story of all um and particularly about reading about mother Rachel isn't it mm. and and her walk across Antigua to find her daughter after the end of slavery can you tell us a bit more about that inspiration and the research that helped to create your novel yes yeah, so um after I'd gone to this uh, exhibition as a teenager I was lucky enough so it was put on by an organization called the Windrush Foundation it's a charity that does lots of sort of activities around Caribbean history and British Caribbean history in the UK and I was lucky enough to meet uh, Arthur Torrington who runs the Windrush Foundation when I was at university because I was doing some work on the Windrush generation and we were talking about Windrush and then I mentioned at the end of this meeting, which would have been, what, three or four years after the exhibition. Oh, by the way, I still can't stop thinking about this thing I saw in one of your exhibitions. And he said, oh, that's so interesting. That was based off this book that I can give you a copy of. Here you go. And the, the book was To Shoot Hard Labour, which is this oral history. So it's kind of a transcribed testimony of this man called Samuel Smith, who was born in Antigua in the 1870s, I think, but lived to be 103. So, you know, he was able to tell his story to his grandchildren in the 20th century. And um, 
um, he remembers his, I think it's great, great grandmother, who, as you mentioned, was called Mother Rachel, doing this walk across Antigua to find her daughter Minty up in the north of the island. So that was one of the examples that they'd drawn on for this exhibition of women really going out and finding their children. Um, so it's no coincidence that my main character is also called Rachel, because that was a big part of the inspiration. But as well as that sort of direct history, I mean, I was drawing quite a lot from my own life, because I have so many wonderful and inspiring black women in my life from my mother and my aunt, and my step grandmother. And I never knew my grandmother, but I've heard so many stories about her. And Rachel was an interesting character to get her, my head into because I obviously I'm much younger than she is. I, I'm mixed race. I'm not black, but knowing my mum, my aunt, my step grandma, as I do, trying to understand the way that black women have had to uh, adapt to survive, to deal with the racism that they face so regularly, but also that in that adaptation and that survival, they don't lose their love and their resilience and their hopefulness and their joy. So that was um, at the forefront of my mind as well when I was creating Rachel, not just the history, but also a bit of trying to get into the mind of, of people that I know and love and putting their kind of characters on the page to celebrate what they're like as well. I think that definitely like comes across. And I think, you know, you really get a sense of resilience and the hope that they they felt, you know, Rachel is such a hopeful person in the face of something so like traumatic and horrendous, you know, literally having her children like torn from her to to continue to hope that, no, I'm going to gather my children, I'm going to find them. You know, that takes an immense amount of like perseverance. And yeah, I think it is just a beautiful story. Um, and yeah, you can really see that you've had those, you know, those influences um within the story. So yeah, it's it's just amazing. <laughs> um so obviously the story is, as we've kind of touched on, it is really epic. Uh, with a real like eclectic cast of characters who feel so real and nuanced. What was the process like of plotting out their individual backstories? Mm. I also saw that you had a Excel spreadsheet, which is music <laughs> to Lydia's ears, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. So I always knew that I wanted the novel to have this almost oral history quality to it, of, um, particularly because it was drawing on my own time in the Caribbean where I was interviewing people, family members, uh, activists, historians. And just that sense of having space on the page for people to tell stories that might not otherwise be told. Um, so the 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 characters throughout the novel, both Rachel, her children, and um, the other side characters, it was a strange mix of sort of plotted out beforehand and then allowing myself some room to experiment and discover. So when I started out, I knew Rachel has five surviving children. I knew where they all were and what had happened to them. But how exactly she got to each one and the people that would help her along the way sometimes came to me as I was drafting. And um, those characters each sort of explore, along with Rachel's children, an element of the history that I wanted to foreground. So, for example, one not very nice side character is in... Um, British Guiana was now Guyana, um, a man called Mr. Beaumont, who runs a tavern that Rachel works at. And Mr. Beaumont appears white, but there is a rumour that he is not because his great, 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 great grandfather might have been black. And I really wanted a character like that to highlight the ridiculousness of this one drop approach to race that was in the Caribbean as, as much as it was in the United States. So, yeah, that was just a kind of small example where I thought here's a chance for me to to slide in something about history that I think it's important to um, make people aware of whilst also creating 
this character who will have a whole set of features and insecurities because of this rumor about him. So yeah, that's just one small example of how the side characters were a really, really interesting and enjoyable way to to grapple with so many of the nuances of the time period and show all the ways in which people were were different, you know. Black people, white people in the Caribbean were not a monolith and everyone was living their lives in their own way. And particularly in this strange time just after emancipation, trying to fashion a life for themselves after slavery was, I'm going to say, ending rather than ended. Because as it points out in the book, you know, you have this period where people had to continue working on the plantations for their former masters. But um, yeah, it was really important to me to represent that diversity all the way from, you know, indigenous characters who represent their own part of the history of the Caribbean that's not often um, well understood through to white, passing white, mixed race and black characters all in there together. Yeah, they all just felt so like completely vivid. And Mr. Beaumont, like I just... Mm despite there's there's one scene and I'm not going to spoil anything but there's just one scene and I think you'll know which one I'm talking about where I just particularly despised him <laughs> and I just yeah to have like such a a huge range of characters that you can either completely fall in love with or totally despise mm-hmm. like that just shows like how skilled you are as a writer you know mm-hmm. and um I could absolutely Lydia's gonna kill me right now but I can absolutely see this being adapted um <laughs> because I could fully you know imagine all of these characters characters you know I could see them in my mind's eye and yeah I I just I I think these are some of my favorite characters that I've read in a long time so absolutely I think we were talking about a little bit about the time period in which the novel's set which I think was a, a brilliant choice we meet Rachel just as slavery has like you say ended uh, although it has just been replaced with this apprenticeship system which is basically just slavery with a different name let's face it so the time period had so many influences on the narrative itself can you tell us why you chose this particular moment in history to set Rachel's journey yeah there were I say I'd say two reasons really the first is that the big theme of the novel is what it means to be free and the journey Rachel is going on is discovering what that means for herself what it's meant for each of her children who are all trying to find freedom in their own ways and so it just made sense with that overarching theme to set the book at a time that was so ambiguous in terms of what it meant to be free you know there's a point uh, early on in the book when they Rachel and the others discover that they are going to be forced to remain on their plantations for six years without pay as apprentices where I think it's something like freedom is another name for the life they've always lived. So um, really leaning into that ambiguity of is the meaning of freedom, is it a legal category? Is it the fact that you are no longer legally considered a slave or is it something more than that? And everyone in the book has a different answer to that question. So that was one part of it. And the other part was that I have a huge amount of respect for art that engages with the full gory details of slavery and it's really unflinching in the way that it looks at the violence but I didn't want to write that kind of book I think I would have found it very traumatic Mm -hmm. and so it's quite a deliberate choice that the book literally opens with Rachel leaving her plantation so it's not a book about slavery it's a book about what comes after it um so that's why I wanted to set it just after emancipation as well I think it was a really powerful beginning though you know and Mm -hmm. I I think that really kind of set the tone of the book with that with that beginning scene. It was so like atmospheric, you know. You you felt like you were running with Rachel, you know, and and the the way that whole scene is written, I just you really get a sense of her need to get away. And I think, you know, you wanting to kind of move away from writing the traumatic side of slavery, which you know it 
it is it is there but you still get a sense of that from the way she's running away from it mm. it was just really powerful a really powerful beginning to a novel and uh, immediately hooked me in um, yeah absolutely and I think sometimes with the te- the the tension that you were able to bring through things like the crack of a twig or the move mm. of uh you know the movement of the light in certain places and you know the 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 sound of someone speaking you know all of these things you don't you didn't we didn't need to see anything else to feel that kind of intensity that she must have felt in that situation I thought it was just so well done oh thank you I do actually want to ask about that now Lydia's going to be annoyed because I'm slotting in another question and taking up my (laughs) (laughs) taking up her time but just you know (laughs) With with it being so, so atmospheric the way it's written and Lydia mentioning like the sounds and you do have this sense of, you know, the sounds and the smells and what they're seeing. And it's it's so like, I don't even know how to, you just really incorporate like all the senses. What inspired that style, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I was talking at the beginning about my, some of my favourite writers and I feel like I have many, but Andrea Levy, Annie Prue and Hilary Mantel are all up there for different reasons. And Andrea Levy, for this novel in particular, I think what she does with Small Island and also with The Long Song in terms of writing about a part of history that is difficult and has suffering in it, but does does it in a way that's so hopeful and uplifting. That was something I really wanted to emulate. But Annie Prue, I think, is just absolutely peerless as a writer about nature. And she was someone that I was thinking about a lot when I was trying to write descriptions of the natural world and be attentive, as you say, to everything that you would feel in that environment. Um, One of her novels I absolutely love is called Bark Skins, which is this great kind of multi-generational epic about, effectively, it's about the forests of America, but told through the story of these two families, one of whom is kind of lumber merchants destroying the forests and other, other people that are being kind of driven out of their ways of life in the old forests. And so, yeah, I guess thinking of other writers whose styles I really admire, who do take that time to consider and evoke the natural world, that was a big influence on my writing. I haven't actually read any of her work, so I am absolutely adding that to my list now. <laughs> <laughs> what my actual question was supposed to be, Lydia, I'm Oh, sorry. here she goes. Now she's back on the screen. <laughs> so... A lot of my questions are going to be character heavy because I, as I've said before, I was very obsessed with the way you wrote your characters. But there was one particular character that I was just completely obsessed with and would really appreciate it if you could just write, for me personally, a spin-off series just for this character. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm intrigued. (laughs) That was Mama B. Oh, yes. Who is such a vibrant character and just a wonderful person, you know. Yeah, I just couldn't stop thinking about her. And it's so strange because as a reader, like she's somebody that you actually don't spend that long with. Mm. Um, What did Mama B represent for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think she represents motherhood in all its forms. So this is obviously a book about motherhood in the very literal sense. But Mama B, who's the character that helps Rachel a lot at the very beginning of her journey, despite her nickname, Mama B is not herself a biological mother, but she is the sort of matriarch of this community of runaways that are sheltering in the north on an old tobacco plantation. So I guess, first of all, she was a a case of showing that motherhood and caring for others comes in in many forms, not just kind of Rachel's form that drives the main story, but others as well. But also she was um, a sign of, again, what it means to be free and how to be resilient in the face of adversity, because 
Rachel, the, the journey of the novel is not just about Rachel finding her children, but also about coming to know herself better and find herself again after this period where she's just had to survive something so awful that it's really dampened elements of her character. You know, the way that you as a mother would have had to react and then feel about your children to be able to let them go in the way that she did initially, it does do lasting damage to you and you have to repair that that wound somehow. And so I think there's a line in the novel where Rachel talks about how Mama B is kind of giving help and giving love so freely and Rachel hasn't been able to do that for a very long time. So I think given the journey that I wanted Rachel to go on in the, the later parts of the novel, it was really important that she met someone very early on that showed her a model of how you could be and how, because Mama B herself was a former slave. She's been through lots of the same things that Rachel has been through, but she's been able to come out of that with this sense of being able to give back to the world and give back mm -hmm. to others. And um, Rachel, later in the book, I think, talks about how she's helping someone who doesn't know why that she's helping them. And she says, well, I, I took help from someone and I shouldn't take help unless I'm prepared to give it again when the time comes. So that mm -hmm. sense of a kind of connection between people and community and being able to help each other out, even though you think in times of extreme adversity, you'd only be looking out for your own survival. Mama mm -hmm. B contained all those things. She contains multitudes. So I'm, I'm very fond of her as well. <laughs> yeah, she's, you can really sense that you're fond of her as well because she's, She's just such a beautiful character and she just doesn't accept thanks, you know, for, <laughs> for how much like good she puts out into the world. And she just won't accept somebody saying thank you to her. And I'm not going to specify what part that is, but yeah, that, <laughs> that part specifically really moved me. And I just think she's just one of the most beautiful characters I've ever read. So, yeah. Absolutely. She's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And we were talking about a little bit about motherhood there. And I really, really believe that motherhood is explored in so many different ways throughout this book. And I did want to read a quote, Hannah, I know you're going to go crazy at me because I'm always <laughs> reading the quotes. But I wanted to read a quote really that was very affecting. And it, just to give our listeners an idea of sort of where Rachel comes from in terms of that, what drives her with her children. Mm it's very short don't worry Hannah I've looked on four pages like usual <laughs> <clears throat> the hut filled with ghosts all of Rachel's lost children crouching in the shadows she did not have to turn her head to see them she knew if she tried to look at them directly they would disappear they had been her companions in the corners of her vision or on the cusp of sleep for many years and I just think I mean when I read that, I was like, highlighter, like, yes, <laughs> I need this quote in my life forever. Um, but Rachel's children and the unbreakable bond she has with all of them forms the centre of the narrative, or did so for me. As a mother myself, some of the scenes involving um, Rachel and her children were beyond moving, like, moved me to tears. Oh. It's just unbelievable. Um, so I kind of wanted to know what was the process like when creating Rachel's family, in particular, like, forming their children, how many children she was going to have, what they were going to be like, how many she'd lost because it's not a spoiler to say that she has um she has already lost children at the point that we meet her um mm. so I just wanted, wanted to know a little bit more about that yeah absolutely and um I just want to start by saying that I think one of the reasons that the original story of women looking for their children affected me so much and this idea of motherhood is so strong in the novel is that one of the central points of slavery was destruction of family life. So people brought over from Africa would be renamed, destroying any kind of connection with their ancestral heritage. They'd be barred from kind of practicing 
their religions or speaking their old languages um but then also the destruction of a right to have your descendants you know there was no respect for any kind of marriages or familial relationships that enslaved people would have had with each other your children your partner could be taken away at any time and sold elsewhere so it was the fact that after all that these women had still refused to let what had been broken stay broken that was what really moved me so I think that's why motherhood is so important and why I really wanted to showcase Rachel's strength this idea that the children were gone from her but as you highlight in that quote were never quite forgotten and she was still able to hold on to the idea of them and the hope that she might see them again all those years in terms of the the way I went about thinking about Rachel's children again don't want to give too much away about the story but I can say that a big part of what I was interested in exploring was, as I mentioned earlier, what it means to be free. So when coming up with the sort of what had happened to each child, which to me was what was going to drive the, the story, I was thinking, for example, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that there is a, a an armed uprising in, in the novel, mentioned in the novel. So the idea that some people had actually rebelled and taken up arms to try and get freedom by force, that's one way of going about it. Or the novel also focuses on a runaway communities. So you as an individual just getting yourself away from the plantation to somewhere where you were remote enough that you could eke out a kind of life for yourself hoping to avoid capture that's another form of freedom that's very different so each of Rachel's children has had to navigate what it means to be free and as part of that I also knew I guess in my head the structure of the novel I was thinking not every reunion is going to be perfect not every reunion is going to be joyful so how will those choices then affect whether or not Rachel can find this child can reconcile with them can bring them with her on the rest of her journey so that's um then also shaped the 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 way that the story panned out is um how have these children tried to make a kind of freedom for themselves what's happened to them because of it and what does that then mean for their relationship with Rachel because while she has held on to this idea of them all those years it is the idea of them as they once were when they were taken from her and sometimes you know whole decades have passed in between so it's so it's really it's painful to imagine the the fact that you might be away from someone you love for so long but then what what kind of relationship can you build you're not just going to get that time back but what what can you do anyway to still have a relationship with that person yeah it's just unimaginable and I think you know when you were saying before about slightly moving away with your book from the trauma of it all I think just her bonds with her children communicates enough of that trauma you know you don't really need to say it all you just show that their relationships and that's all really you need to show and that tells us enough you know you can really feel it through that I mean Lydia you're you're a mother I'm not but I'm sure for you like it was a a really powerful read in that sense absolutely I think that from my perspective first of all just the thought of being separated from your children is like unbelievably stressful Mm. (laughs) like already I'm like no but not only that you know the thought of being separate and then having to not it's not just a simple thing of just finding them it's locating them and then finding out about their story and then the different stories of the children and and the issues that had happened to them like you said it's not it's it was not simple it's not just going back and getting the five-year-olds that was took from you because Mm -hmm. it's been 10 years or 20 years and you you know that five-year-old is a man now or is a woman now and has had to deal with some traumatic experiences themselves you know it's not always a running into each other's arms and everything's Mm -hmm. okay situation and I think that the way that 
the uh, without giving too much away the way that the narrative dealt with that was so well done because it's nothing felt straightforward and Mm -hmm. everything was a surprise and I think that it was just that was great as a as a reader yeah I think you explored like the complexities of the situation like really well Mm -hmm. as Lydia said I am also going to read a quote (laughs) of your own book Can I just say, this is the first of our excitement. Thank you. So yeah, we're unusual in the sense that most podcasts or most people interviewing you will get you to do a reading, whereas we're cringy and read your book back to you. So oh, no, straight lovely. back at you. Looking in your eyes. <laughs> it gives you a rest. It gives you a rest. Um, so this is quite late in the book and I'm going to tread very carefully because I've been careful to pick a quote that really moved me but also doesn't spoil too much I was going to say don't you be giving anything away (laughs) (laughs) he got punished for it Thornhill she already knew the answer there were supposed to be things that were beyond the pale but the law had never protected them like it should now his sister married to a judge they never get him for anything all the years he's been here Rachel burned with the injustice of it this surprised her she was no stranger to such things There had been an overseer back in Barbados who was similarly well-connected, whose youngest victim had been only four years old, knocked unconscious by a beating and never woke up. Rachel had spent years numbing herself to the thousands of cruelties, large and small, that made up daily life on a plantation. Yet here she was, rage bubbling up and threatening to spill out of her in a scream, as though she had never before heard of a white man murdering a black one and getting away with it. Hats off to you, Eleanor. Like, (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, that that moment really moved me and I think it moved me in particular because I feel like it's a really strong representation of how throughout history there's been this sort of gross stereotyping about black people you know being angry um in the face of injustice and you know that being perceived as like unwarranted or unprovoked when actually it's a completely valid response for what they've been through why was it important for you to explore the idea of Rachel having to numb herself to these emotions? Yeah, I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier of trying to understand how someone could have and would have survived as long as she did under experiences of extreme trauma and suffering. And the way she had chosen to survive was through that numbing, because otherwise you kind of couldn't get through your daily life the Mm. grief of it all would have killed you and that is a kind of survival but again returning to that central question is it freedom and so Mm -hmm. the journey that Rachel's going on and where you find her towards the end of the book where you just read the quote is that she's rediscovering that ability to be incensed by Mm -hmm. injustice and to be angry and to feel the full depth of what has has -hmm. happened and it's interesting you bring up the kind of um some of the stereotypes around black anger and um I've kind of avoided saying up until this point as well that Rachel is strong because I'm cognizant of the stereotypes Mm -hmm. around black women and strength as well and I really wanted in thinking about Rachel's character and the the women I alluded to who helped inspire her I I do believe she's very strong. She's very strong, just as my mother is strong, my aunt is strong, my grandmother, my step-grandmother are strong, but she's also quiet and she's cautious and she's Mm. watchful and she's wary. So she has the, you know, the full spectrum of emotions and it's not just all strength all the time. So I also wanted a character that that shows that you can't 
you can't possibly be angry all the time or that there yeah. won't always be periods of your life when you're feeling that anger as strongly and as deeply because it would literally cripple you and paralyze mm. you so um yeah showing Rachel feeling the full spectrum of emotion um to be sensitive to as you say this the, the stereotypes around anger or around strength or around resilience that it's not that people weren't strong and they weren't angry and they weren't resilient but they also felt other things too <laughs> yeah but also that you know that that black women being referred to as strong like that strength was was sort of forced upon them you know they had they had to be strong you know Mm. like you said to survive and I think you know just thinking about what you said that's what I was going to say um there we go (laughs) to to an extent you know if they had shown they that any kind of rage and you know got on the attack with the people that were capturing them or that were effectively holding them hostage you know they they could have been killed Mm. you know so I guess that there is that as well. Um, mm. But I just thought, you know, you explored that really well. And as we were talking before about like the complexities of it all, I just found that that moment in particular was just really moving. And yeah, well, Ken's, if you mm. haven't already pre-ordered this book whilst you've been listening to this conversation, <laughs> get on it. Now is the time. Now, now is, is the time. The time. <laughs> so we've spoken a lot about um, Rachel's journey to find her children and and the premise of the novel. Um, but I also wanted to explore um, the title of the novel and mm. the river that we, we talk about. So the river that forms the title of the novel, it kind of runs throughout the narrative, like this kind of thread of hope and sometimes danger and despair. There is a lot of imagery and depiction of water in its many forms, particularly the river and the sea. Um, what role did the river, sea, water as a whole um, have for you when forming the narrative yeah they were they were crucial um partly because um I am very conscious that in books about slavery and the legacy of slavery the kind of American experience looms quite large and African-American slavery and Caribbean slavery shared many similarities but they also had their differences and one of the big differences that's there right from the beginning of the novel as Rachel is running away and then she hits the end of the island and the sea is that in the United States, uh, it was by no means easy to escape, but there was this sense of the Underground Railroad, the Northern routes to freedom, and a sense that you could kind of travel across land and it might just be possible to escape. But in the Caribbean, the the geography of the place is part of the confinement because particularly in somewhere like Barbados, where the novel begins, which is a small island, it was very densely settled. It was known as Little England because it was sort of the jewel in the British Empire's Caribbean crown and... um, there really wasn't anywhere to hide. If you ran away, you might try and go to one of the bigger towns like Bridgetown and hide yourself just because there were so many people there, but there wasn't sort of big forests or mountains where you could hide away. And there wasn't a way that, unless you did manage to get yourself onto a boat, it was just incredibly difficult to get away. So right from the very beginning, I knew I wanted the the, the sort of sea to represent that element of things. The fact that you are on these islands surrounded by water and that's adds a sense of jeopardy and an obstacle to Rachel's journey to be able to move between the islands. And then in terms of the the river, there there are a few rivers in the novel, but the big one is Rachel's journey um, up the Demerara River in Guyana to um, go to a runaway village. And there I just, you know, I mentioned earlier that I love writers who deal with the natural world. And I knew that I wanted Rachel to be on one of these great rivers of Latin America, which is just so breathtakingly beautiful. And unlike, you know, as someone 
born and lived my whole life in the UK, we, we can't really hold a candle. The Thames can't really hold a candle to the sort of extraordinary scale of um, that natural beauty. I wanted that to be a part of the novel and it helps that I wanted to tell a story of, of runaways and Indigenous people that um, survived best when there were remoter areas that they were able to settle in, like the rainforests in the interior of um, Guyana that would have only been reachable by river. So Water and sea and rivers definitely a big big theme and a big love of mine as well. You know, I I, I live by the sea. I love going walking in the sea. Um, my mum, who's very into her astrology, would say it's because I'm a Pisces. So I guess <laughs> I always need to be near water. <laughs> I love that. As we were talking about themes, I've just completely scrapped my final question because. <laughs> I've just thought of something I really wanted to ask you about. Um, Obviously, within the title, River Sing Me Home is sing. You know, there are definitely, you know, huge moments in the book where music and song play a huge part in. Um, I wanted you to speak a little bit about that, about what the role of music and song played for you in this novel. Yes, I always knew that they would play a part of it because um, the novel's about that connection of uh, to family in terms of descendants, you know, trying to find your children. But I also alluded to the role that slavery played in trying to destroy connection to your ancestors and to your heritage. And so music and song would have been one of the small ways people could continue to preserve a bit of African culture in the new world. And so it is a, a recurrent theme in the, the novel that people will sing and that will be a way of characters will kind of recognize something half forgotten and they'll realize you know the the mother that I don't remember who I would have been sold away from when I was a young child must have used to sing me that song in a language that she knew and I no longer do but I can still recognize something in it that makes me feel more connected to where I have come from so there was that element to it as well and also when I was doing my field work in the, the Caribbean um, I was reminded very powerfully of the, the role of, of song in um, memory and preserving an element of history because I um, was in St Lucia visiting the Folk Research Centre which does a lot of research into St Lucia's, uh, St Lucia's heritage and history and I was interviewing the subject of my research was how slavery is remembered on the islands and whether that shapes the case for reparations. I was talking to this man and at one point he was sort of telling a story about something to do with what he'd learned slavery was like and he just said hang on a second and he called a woman in from the other room and said can you sing that that song for me and this woman just sang this beautiful song in in quail which is the the saint lucian um language it's a mix of kind of african languages and french and it was a, a story of um i think it was something to do with birds on a birds flying on a plantation with a kind of the birds being a metaphor for for freedom and then there was a the master was in there, the overseer, the foreman, but then these birds still being able to fly away. And um, yeah, that was a, just a, a really powerful reminder that um, even today, there's elements of the past that get handed down through song. And so that's just been part of human memory and storytelling and history since time immemorial. So I knew I wanted to honour it in the book. That's incredible. I, that. <laughs> I wish I could hear that song. <laughs> I, I wish so I could remember beautiful. it, but I wanted to do a terrible job. <laughs> Sounds absolutely beautiful. Now I can't I can't finish this interview without talking about this story of Micah. And I'm not gonna give I'm gonna try not to give too much away about <laughs> it. Um it's hard not to, um, but Micah is uh, Rachel's son. Um and uh Micah plays a huge part in the uprising of a plantation um where he's enslaved, and his story is particularly or was to me was particularly affecting. 
I had no real idea about the rebellions or mm. the revolutions that, that actually occurred at this point in time on these islands. Um, how important was it for you to include these types of events? Yeah, it was so important because um, that exhibition that I went to when I was a teenager, it was called Making Freedom. And the whole idea of it was that often in the UK, we learn about slavery as this terrible thing that happened. But then white people like William Wilberforce realised it was bad and they gave the slaves their freedom, which just does not do any justice to the agency of Caribbean people. It doesn't deal with all the ways that they were the agents of their own liberation through these rebellions and these uprisings. So I always knew I wanted to have an example in there and particularly an example of this um, strange time in between. So the British um, abolished the slave trade in 1807, but not slavery, the institution until 1834. And there are many, you know, the history of abolition in the UK is very complicated. And I'm not saying that there weren't moral reasons and there weren't people that felt moved on a moral level to do something about the injustice. But there was also an economic and a self-interested perspective. And that was that at the end of the 18th century, the Haitian Revolution had happened, this uprising in a French colony that created the first independent Black Republic outside of Africa. And the British, you know, the French are their direct colonial rivals in, in the Caribbean. The British are looking at that and initially they're thinking, oh, well, about two thirds of the enslaved people in Haiti had been born in Africa. And so clearly the problem is these, you know, quote unquote, savage Africans. And so if we stop the slave trade, in places like Barbados, the population was almost 90% born on the island. So we won't have a problem. We'll be able to keep slavery by abolishing the slave trade. And then when you have these rebellions, like um, it's mentioned very briefly in the novel, but in 1816, there was a big rebellion in Barbados. You have the one in um, Demerara in 1823 that Micah is a part of. Um, and then you have one in Jamaica in, the, in 1832, 1833 um, as well. These are all islands with large, you know, Creole populations, people born on the islands, and they're clearly rebelling against slavery itself. But again, the self-interested perspective is to say, well, if we don't do something about this, we're going to lose the islands entirely. They're going to stop becoming colonies like Haiti. They'll become independent. We won't be able to continue to exploit their sugar wealth. We won't be able to continue to own all the plantations. So one of the catalysts for slavery is uh, the ending of slavery is this economic self-interest. It's not just about the morality of it. So I definitely wanted to have these uprisings in there to, to prove that, you know, People resisted slavery in large ways as well as small ways, and also to allude to the fact that this resistance was so crucial to the timing of abolition. And without it, it probably wouldn't have happened when it did or in the way that it did. So, um, yeah, it wasn't just Wilber William Wilberforce. There's a lot more to the abolition story than that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating because I think in the in the book, you really captured the risk that these people are having to go through to try and rebel it's even the idea a whisper of you know we're going to do something about this is so dangerous you know and it's it's there's a there's a part of the book where they say you know and I told the person I could trust who could tell a person that they trusted mm -hmm. and somehow we would all kind of get this collective idea together 
but it was very much like you told the wrong person mm. everything would be completely just kiboshed it would just never have happened and the fact that it was able to come to fruition in so many people were able to to stand up and try it's mm. just it's just unbelievable I can't believe that the risk that people went through mm. it was it's yeah. so scary it really yeah. is yeah, it, yeah. it's just the whole the way that we're taught about slavery in education setting you know in schools and stuff it's just so wrong like the way that we're well, taught it's also barely there well yeah yeah <laughs> can I just say <laughs> from my perspective yeah yeah so um, just hearing you talk about all that like it's you know it's it's so like insightful and you know this mm. stuff reading books like this you know and and hearing you talk about writing this book like it's an education really like you know we were never taught any of this stuff which is shocking you know and like you said about William what was his name William William? Wilberforce yeah like it's the whole like white savior like (laughs) yeah Yeah. I know it's um, I know it's bringing a kind of visual medium into an oral format but I would encourage everyone to 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 kind of look up and um have the image there while I'm talking but uh, one of the the comparisons I find the most instructive is the sort of classic image of of British emancipation versus some of the images that are in the Caribbean so a lot of people will be familiar with the um, Josiah Wedgwood print that was distributed by abolitionists in the UK which is a black man on his knees with manacles on his hands saying am I not a man and a brother so this idea that someone is kind of begging you to see and recognize their humanity and that you're the only one as white British people that can do anything about his freedom Whereas um, in Barbados, I've been to see this wonderful statue called the Emancipation Statue that's just outside Bridgetown that is nicknamed the Busser Statue after the slave that led the uprising in 1816. And it's this incredibly powerful image of a black man with his fists raised to the sky, breaking his own chains. And so just that to me really encapsulates what I wish people knew about slavery is that it's not all the someone on their knees begging you to recognize their humanity. It's the someone with their fists to the sky, breaking their own chains and forcing you to recognize their humanity yeah absolutely and and that's I feel like this book is is very much you know Rachel's journey is very much about that she does this for herself Mm. she does this by herself I mean yes Mm. she has so much help and things but it's her feet that are carrying her across these islands and it's you know it's her hope and her her sense of justice and and eventual hopeful freedom that is the motor behind it all you know she does it she Mm. does it and I think it's just a a wonderful portrayal of that journey it's so so brilliant I could literally talk about it forever and I will (laughs) you and me both I feel like (laughs) I do feel like this book is going to be a classic in the future I really do I strongly believe that yeah Um, we, we talk about Andrea Levy and we talk about you know all of these great authors and and I am gonna sit here and say that your name is gonna be among them. I can, oh, I can tell that you. That would be the dream. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's happening. Absolutely. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> now, before we let you go, obviously we would love to talk to you about your book for hours, but we don't have the time. Um, I would. <laughs> so as this is a debut series, we would love to ask you, are there any debut authors that you would like to recommend that you would like to put on our listeners' radars? 
Oh, there are so many, but uh, to <laughs> narrow it down to a few, two books coming out in March. One is by an author called Isabel Schuler, and it's called Lady Macbeth Ad, and it's a retelling of um, the Lady Macbeth story. But as um, so, she's a real historical figure, actually, that was married to Macbeth. And this is about her childhood and how she came to become Lady Macbeth. And then if that doesn't give you your fill of incredibly complex, morally grey anti-heroines, there's also um, Clytemnestra by um, Costanza Cassati, which is coming out in March as well. Um, that's a retelling of the Clytemnestra story. Again, another fabulously complex, difficult, spiky, yet somehow incredibly compelling heroine. Then another March book, The Human Origins of Beatrice Porter and Other Essential Ghosts, is by a American Trinidadian author called Soraya Palmer. And it's got this wonderful ode to kind of Caribbean folklore and storytelling with all these wonderful uh, mythical creatures and um, legends that weave their way into this story of a family. And then the final one I'll say is um, The Revels by Stacey Thomas, which is coming out in the summer, which is a story of a uh, witch hunter and witch uh, in the uh, Civil War period. So yeah, those are my big recommendations for debut authors. Amazing. Can I just say that is a fantastic list. (laughs) I've heard so much as well about Clytemnestra. I work in a a bookshop and literally everybody is like pre-ordering it and like saying like it's going (laughs) to be like amazing. So uh, I've just written it down like actually, yes, do buy. (laughs) (laughs) And Eleanor, where can our listeners find you online? So I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Eleanor B. Shearer for both of those. And I've also got a website, eleanorshearer.com. Fabulous. And um, listeners, follow at your own risk because there are a lot of great book recommendations on there. Um, I actually have already ordered a book before this interview from looking at your Instagram earlier. Um, I ordered 28 questions. Oh, um, yes. And uh, I'm so excited for that to come. So yeah, if you want more book recommendations, listeners, then please do give her a follow. (laughs) Um, I am so excited for this book to come out. I just feel like it's going to be huge. Um, But River Sing Me Home will be published by Headline Review on the 19th of January, which is very exciting. We will (laughs) link to an order link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm just just so excited for you because I just know that this is going to be received well. I've already seen so much hype around it. So yeah, it's going to be huge. And I think that is all we've got time for. We've gone one minute over time, so I'm sorry. (laughs) It's usually like 20. We're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, But listeners, please do rate, review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. Um, You can give us a follow at a pair of bookends pod on Instagram or at a pair of bookends on Twitter and TikTok. Please go and order Eleanor's book and please do give her a follow and show your support. I'm sure she would love to see you buying the book you know tag her in your reviews only if they're good you know and and if they're not good then don't speak to me because this is just an incredible book so (laughs) don't listen to the podcast anymore (laughs) um but yeah thank you so much Eleanor this has been such an amazing conversation so thank you for coming on thank you it's been so delightful bye